The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. Today, I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Simone Maven. She is a PM&R physician and she specializes in interventional spine. She currently practices in South Carolina. She's a graduate of the Air Force Academy. So thank you for your service, Dr. Maven, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to join you and I'm ready to get into some of these topics you've come up with. Definitely put together a, a good uh, list of topics to cover today. Yeah, yeah. I'm really looking forward to picking your brain because you've accomplished so many different things in different areas of the country and different very prestigious institutions. Um, also a fellow podcast host, you host the Healthy 365 podcast. So very excited to, to be talking with you. Well, thank you so much. I'm really flattered. and I appreciate that. All this kind of works. Let's start um, kind of close to the beginning, but how did you decide to go to the Air Force Academy for college? You know, my parents uh, told me early on that I was going to have to figure out how to get to college uh, on my own and I thought they were kidding um, until <laughs> I started bringing the list of college colleges I was interested in which are all you know kind of far-reaching I've kind of been a, a driven person since I was young and so I wanted to go all these really expensive schools and my dad was like oh okay so how are you gonna go and I was like oh you're serious mm. about this whole applying for things. So I did, you know, I created a little spreadsheet as a high school student. I created a little spreadsheet and applied for like over 30 to 40 scholarships. Um, I was in JROTC at the time. So I applied for ROTC scholarships and got those. So that was kind of the direction I was going until a recruiter came um, to my school and you know informed me about the Air Force Academy preparatory school, which prepares you to matriculate into the Air Force Academy is essentially directly after spending a year under like a sub junior college curriculum there. And at first I was turned off by that idea, thinking like, what? No, like I'm, I'm great. I'm going to do good things. Like, right. you know, what is this junior college thing you speak of? But after I learned, you know, just how amazing of an opportunity it would be and how it sets you apart, I thought, well, man, well, the Air Force Academy really gives me that prestige I was looking for that I learned that, I, you know, through the process of how um, respected it was kind of in, you know, the United States. And then it would, you know, meet that goal of having it financially covered. And so I took that dive for the prep school, knowing that I would work my hardest and do well there and essentially guarantee me into a spot where, you know, getting into the Air Force Academy is there's a less than 10% chance for those that apply. So essentially, gosh, I mean, I think actually the numbers are, it's a little bit harder than medical school. Wow. And so I said, you know what, I have to have faith, apply for that process and kind of went for it. And when I got accepted, I was like, whoa, forget about these other scholarships. Like I'm going to, you know, a great school and, you know, the lift it. You know, I lifted that weight of, you know, the finance of the school from my parents. And so it's kind of a win-win from that perspective. And what was your experience doing your time at the Air Force Academy? Did you fly planes during the summer and stuff or, or what did you learn there? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, the Air Force Academy offers you opportunities to focus on what you're interested in pretty early on. 
that first summer, you're focused on some basic requirements, so you don't have a lot of choice. So survival training, spending time you know, in the Rocky Mountains, learning what it would be like if you were captive as a pilot. You know, that's, there's a lot of tradition still rooted within the academy, even though it has progressed over the years. And so that's one of the traditional elements is kind of going through a lot of summer training programs. And so I went through that. And then there are some other opportunities as you go through the summer to be the cadre or the trainers of the young people going through these development programs through the summer and even the basic training. So eventually you are doing the basic training. And that is how you learn as a 19-year-old how to be a leader. You know, through your summer times, you're training the younger cadets how to go through these processes and working them through that curriculum. I spent a couple um, blocks of my time doing some summer courses as well to kind of lo- lighten up my load there for academies. Load is, you know, quite um, demanding. Um, each semester's, you know, 21 plus credits easily. Oh, wow. There's, yeah, there's nothing like what I've heard from other colleges. And so you, anything I could do to kind of lower that, I was an athlete there. I was doing a lot of other things. And um, I found the academics quite challenging, um, to say the least. You know, the background curriculum is engineering, you know, aeronautical, astronautical, civil engineering, mechanical mm. engineering. And it turned out I loved that and I didn't know that. But as a person focused on going to medical school, what's the number one thing we care about? GPA, right? right, right. I'm like, whatever it takes to get a 4.0. So, you know, here I was trying to balance all these military requirements, the sports, you know, the, there's a physical fitness average, a PEA, just like there is a GPA. So they really push you to strive for balance in these three areas of performance, military, fitness, and academics. And it kind of pulls away from a personal goal, which is a, a great GPA to go to medical school. However, I think reflecting on that where I'm at now, what do I strive for? Balance. You know, I really want to be, you know, a whole person within my family and friendship dynamic. I want to be fit and um, well-rounded within my personal life. And then I also want to do well with the medicine. So, you know, even though that's challenging, then I think it's rooted in kind of what a balanced life, I what I perceive to be very balanced at this time. I had a lot of hard days there um, because of that push for the balance. And there's a lot of times I wanted to quit. And I, you know, I never did. Obviously, you reach out to your family and the people there are your brothers and sisters and you rely on each other to push through it. And you remember your goals and the idea of starting over when, you know, the process is so long, it just it was overwhelming. And so all those things pushed me to kind of stick with it and just remember that it was all going to be worth it in the end. And you really just have to have faith in that because it does really, really suck um, almost the entire four years. Oh, that's, um, that's a glowing review. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, there's things you can't get anywhere else. You know, you can't get, I mean, I could go on and on the things you cannot get in any other school environment that you get there for Academy is just beyond, you know, it undoubtedly has shaped my future, open doors. I wasn't expecting then, you know, people don't even ask me about what medical school I went to sometimes they're focused on the air force Academy. You know, when I interview for programs, Right now, when I interview for jobs, people talk about the Air Force Academy, and that was so long ago. And so not only did it develop me as a person and help me um, build this network of people that are closer than anyone else's, you know, I'm sure they're random classmates in college, a a traditional school, 
but it helped me to develop um, a, I don't know, I guess kind of a, a, a foundation for how I'm going to survive when I hit the other bumps in the road that I definitely hit as I went throughout my life. You know, that was just the beginning. And then it just, everything else felt like possible. You know, as I struggled through the other steps of med school and residency and fellowship, it just, everything seemed easier than the academy. And so there's Mm -hmm. a reason that I was supposed to go through that. And I'm thankful for that because everything seems possible. And even when I fail, I'm like, oh, anyway, whatever, you know, (laughs) I've made it through other things. I can do it. And so I'm very grateful to be from there and I wouldn't change it. But I have to be honest about going through that experience. And there's most cadets would agree. I mean, you can't go through that experience and say, oh, it's all, you know, sunshine and rainbows. It's, it's just not, you know, it's supposed to be a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I work with some Naval Academy grads and there's something about the service academies okay. where they just, they mm-hmm. breed leaders and you definitely have a different perspective coming out of there. And it's, it's mm-hmm. evident. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks for asking about that. I haven't had to talk about the Academy in a while. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, so Dr. Maven, we're going to fast forward to medical okay. school. Um, okay. and you went to the medical university of South Carolina and mm-hmm. along the way, I know you've been very active in the international federation of bodybuilding and fitness. You mm-hmm. are extremely vested in your physical fitness did that help push you into the specialty of PM&R coming out of medical school or, or what led you to choose that specialty? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the journey was definitely a journey. And I think a lot of people can connect with that when you're trying to pick what pathway to go into. Once you decide you're going to be a physician, some people might have set out, well, I kind of thinking about this. And then you are exposed to different people and different opportunities. And that helps to narrow you in. And that's essentially what happened for me. Ever since I was very young, I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. And so I went into medical school kind of just knowing that. And I'd done special programs like we all do when we're getting ready to go to medical school. Right. And I've been exposed to neurosurgeons and a lot of them did I was exposed to weren't the happiest of neurosurgeons. Now I know that it all just depends on who you meet along your way. But the ones I met along the way, I'm like, man, this does not seem like the field. Um <laughs> are not happy. And so I became more open-minded going through medical school, looking at other things that were just as interesting and hands-on and um, found myself going towards the orthopedic route, given my background with health and fitness and being an athlete. And when I went and did a program at Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, I had the opportunity to meet a physiatrist on the rotation while I was there. So I was in the operating room and I was working with the female um, surgeons that work at the Women's Sports Medicine Center there. Awesome, awesome opportunity. And I still actually still wanted to do that when I left, but I was exposed to that physiatrist to know that they even existed and right. they did some really cool procedures. So when I came back to medical school, I did a rotation there and I started becoming more privy of that. I think actually med school, I think I started the um, interest group because we didn't have one at MUSC. So I started the interest group for that. So more students could be exposed to that and learn more about it. And the few physicians I could find to, um, teach us and mentor us, we would do that. And so it was on my radar at that point. And then I started to learn how much it aligned with movement and function and mobility and fitness. I was like, man, this is essentially like fitness, but 
you're a doctor. How cool is that? And I became, you know, drawn to that as a field. And, you know, people that know a little about PM&R, actually not a lot of people know about PM&R, but a good way I break up PM&R is there's the inpatient side and there's the outpatient side. Inpatient deals with people that are greatly permanently and maybe not so permanently functionally declined after major catastrophic medical event, you know, a stroke, a brain injury, multi-trauma, a spinal cord injury where they're newly paralyzed. You know, these are the kind of functional changes that we're seeing in the inpatient side of things. And then the less traumatic and sad side of things, there's sports medicine and spine. And I knew early on I was in, I was more going to be more drawn to the outpatient side of things, and not because I I'm not interested in those diagnoses on inpatient. I find those like exciting, and people think that's so devastating. Those people love to meet us and get better. Right. So inpatient rehab is a very gratifying field, um, contrary to what people think. But I don't like the inpatient lifestyle and the schedule. So really, it was more that that drew me to now I'm selecting between sports medicine and spine on the outpatient side of things. And then like any student, you do the rotations, you get exposed to things. And I was like, spine is it. Spine is it. I want to do hands-on. I want to do something ironically connected back to, you know, the anatomy of the central nervous system. Like I was always interested in back when I was 12 years old when I wanted to do neurosurgery, you know, so it all kind of came back full circle, which, you know, it's kind of funny when I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Cause I definitely didn't fully know the breath. I'm learning more and more, mostly through like interviewing people, but mm -hmm. how uh, physiatry work and works and what uh, PM&R docs do, but the breakdown of the inpatient and outpatient um, definitely helps clarify things. Mm -hmm. I know over the last couple of years, uh, physiatry has become more and more popular as more students mm -hmm. find out about it. So as you were applying to residency, you ended up going to Vanderbilt, again, a fantastic university, mm -hmm. but you were kind of towards the beginning of their PM&R residency program. Is that correct? Oh, I was actually the very first class that they started. So we were the very, very first oh, wow. class to start in the first graduating class of PM&R there. Yeah. So how, what was that experience like, you know, basically helping launch a, a residency program as you are yourself a resident? Gosh, I feel like I have so many dramatic stories. Um, but dr dramatic or traumatic? <laughs> Dramatic, dramatic. Okay. Maybe it's traumatic too, but no, I just feel like every chapter is, gosh, but it was hard. Like <laughs> it was really hard a lot of times. I mean, when you're new, the curriculum hasn't been established and been proven that it works. Mm. So you're going through curriculum. Now people always forget this, which is really important. Your attendings are not new. Right. Like right. these attendings have done physiatry that forever. You know, the the chairman is one of the most respected physiatrists in, in the world, not just nation. The people he selected that follow him to that department are some of the most respected people in the United States and what they do in their respective fields. So we had the backing of out, outstanding faculty and they knew what they were doing from a medical perspective. But there's the nuances of the curriculum that just have to be worked out as you go year by year. And I found myself being able to contribute to that because I'm interested in that. And I find myself to be a natural leader and want to be involved in developing something. And I actually said that in my interview there is I'd be more interested in becoming part of a program where I could help build something because I want to use my military experience 
uh, rather than going into something where everything we bring up as an opportunity for change, they used to say, oh, we've done it this way for 20 years. Hmm. You know, Vanderbilt wasn't going to tell us that. They're open to any suggestion you have at the beginning. And I think that is the good that came with the challenge of things were new for them. And I'm honored and proud that we have the opportunity to build that from the roots, but undoubtedly it's changed and improved year by year so much. And right now the program they have there, I, I wish I could be part of that program. You know, they, <laughs> that's what it's about, right? Like you want to be the foundation of something that becomes great. And I hope that those that come after me have a better training opportunity and those after them have a better training opportunity. And that's what they're doing at Vanderbilt now is becoming, you know, more fantastic and more, you know, well fine tuned and more unique opportunities. And so I'm, I'm glad that I was there, but it wasn't without its challenges as we kind of developed it along the way. I was like the first chief resident. You can just imagine for you or other people that chief residents, you know, what do you normally do? You go on whatever share drive there is and you go on (laughs) and you're updating them and you're filling them out. I would, we were creating everything, right? Like everything had to be created. There was nothing to fill in. There was no, Oh, everything is on Wednesdays. No, we were deciding what days things were going to be on. So it, it was tough, but I, I don't think I would have done it any other way. It seems to be a trend for me. Right. It <laughs> definitely seems to, seem to be a trend. Uh, <laughs> if there's no path, then you, you make one for yourself. Yeah, that's true. Um, so as a physical medicine and rehabilitation resident, what types of rotations did you go on or go through during that residency mm-hmm. program? Okay. Yeah. Let me think this through. I love that part because there's so much breadth and you really did get to refine that final year to do things that were more in line with what you were interested in. So some of the aspects of physiatry that people don't think of right away are palliative care. Um, Palliative care, we actually did a couple months of because some of the patients you will interact with are cancer patients. So they've gone through multiple treatments and they keep coming to rehab to strengthen, to go back through treatments And then there becomes a point in which the physiatrist is part of answering the question, what functional ability remains based Mm. on the current condition. And so you need to be ideally comfortable with those interactions, even if not an expert. And so that was unique and great. I love that because building those communication skills that palliative care doctors have are, you know, unmatchable if you have the opportunity to work with them. And then, some of the other rotations, we work with neurology quite extensively, um, work seeing patients in the acute setting of stroke management is quite helpful because you get to see what critical thing decisions are made at the end of that stroke management as they get ready to transition in a more stable pattern to rehab. But then you also get to see how you need to manage those stroke patients if they do start to have recrudescence, which is reoccurrence of symptoms. Um, immediately after and how to be comfortable with that and not freak out and when to call the neurologist and just be able to manage that, you know, confidently. Some other things people don't think of too commonly are working really in depth with the speech therapist and the physical therapist and occupational therapist. I mean, we got pretty intricate in the level of detail we worked with them because as physiatrists, one of the things we, most of us take pride in is we write very specific orders for our therapies Mm -hmm. and you need to know what therapy exists out there. So for balance, you ironically at Vanderbilt anyway, um, if there's a specific specific balance issue coming from the vestibular system, those actually go to the speech therapist. So there's all these nuances 
within therapy treatments that you learn by spending a lot of time with the therapist that you work through. We went to the outpatient cardiac rehab to see what those patients go through after major transplant surgery, after after a cardiac um, transplant, a pulmonary transplant. Um, I did a lot of ICU. Um, It's people wouldn't think that that's super relevant. We work in inpatient rehab. Almost all those patients have died a couple of times and then they survive and then they come to patient rehab. You have Hmm. to know how to make people survive again until they get back to the ICU if they're transferring out because they have a complication due to their underlying condition. And so I did a lot of ICU rotations and I actually loved it because there's a lot of procedures with ICU, which I enjoyed. A lot of, we do a whole year of med, internal medicine because of that factor. So even though I was in a categorical program, which there's a, there's a mix, there's advanced and there's categorical. I spent that whole year doing internal medicine and covered the whole gamut at Vanderbilt, which is, I was very humbled to be part of that group <laughs> because it's so intelligent. Yeah. Um, and then as a pain physician, I started focusing on at the end on going to work with the anesthesia group to see how they did things a little bit differently than the way PM&R does procedures. And then I spent a long time with sports medicine and I worked with the concussion, concussion specialist. I mean, I could probably go on and on. I think that gives you a good scope. Of <laughs> yeah. Very, okay. very broad and, and comprehensive. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely get a little bit of everything. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's super interesting that you had that initial interest in neurosurgery. You went into physical medicine rehabilitation and you kind of ended back in that neurosurgical realm when you applied Mm -hmm. to fellowship and Mm -hmm. your podcast, Healthy 365, you have a recent episode that was titled, I failed and landed at Hopkins. And it speaks to what you experienced when you were applying to fellowship. Fantastic episode. Mm-hmm. I encourage everybody to go check that out because it, it I found it really motivating in terms of mm-hmm. you think somebody has everything together and then, you know, life hits them in the face and how do they recover and react? So you covered that extensively, but mm-hmm. you went to Johns Hopkins for fellowship. And can you share more about what you learned during that year that you took the, uh, Fellowship in Interventional Spine and uh, Musculoskeletal Medicine? So my um, fellowship was labeled as an Interventional Spine and Musculoskeletal Medicine Fellowship. And some of them have that piece um, and some of them do. Um, and so the focus of my fellowship, the first six months or so, was getting really good at basic diagnosis and conservative treatment of common conditions of pain mostly coming from the spine, but we treat conditions from head to toe, you know, with the fellowship director I worked with, you know, that's really important because it all depends on who your teacher is. The fellowship director I worked with kind of knows kind of head to toe. If there's a joint or a nerve, then we can treat it. Not so much where you're getting into, you know, the, the advanced dangerous procedures in the first six months, you know, bread and butter, you know, how to safely handle complications, how to ham- handle, you know, identifying patients that were indicated for conditions and, What were all the conservative options to offer them before we do the procedures? And that was the focus of it. And you did start getting into procedures very fast and heavy. Hopkins is a very high volume program. And so Mm -hmm. I did a lot of procedures in that first six months, um, probably equal to what people do in their first year. But what the breadth wasn't wide. You know, he really wanted me to, my fellowship director um, wanted me to focus on, you know, fine tuning the skills for the most common things 
in the peripheral joints in the lumbar spine that first month, um, the first six months. The other thing we added in that first six months that I really, really wanted was the EMG exposure with the neurologist there. Um, a lot of people probably know that the neurologists and neurosurgery um, folks at Hopkins are you know, really impressive. And so any opportunity to talk with them, even for a day, is amazing. So spending a couple months with them, it really helps broaden you as a physician. And so we would spend time with the neurologist a couple times a week seeing the patients that they would do EMG on. Now, as a resident, we, um, physiatry, we have to do over 200 EMGs um, to graduate residency. So we okay. already have that experience doing them. And one thing you learn as you're going through that training is you and the neurologist have a little bit different way that they operate doing the EMGs and nerve conduction studies um, and that they just have some different logistics the way they set it up. And so it's, it was great to go to a different institution at that point with all those skills under my belt. And basically I could do the EMGs if I needed to, if I wanted to, and I was allowed to do that. And then I could also just sit there and learn and ask questions from them. And then I think one day a week I was with neurosurgery. So that's a really unique opportunity because you need to be able to hear what the surgeons say with certain conditions, what timelines they find to be critical for surgery, and just be able to have that that language for patients because you are the one sending them to surgery a lot of times. And so developing that rapport with the physicians is critical so you can quickly get them in, but developing the terminology, the language, understanding what they find to be surgical indications and all these details they share with the patients was really helpful. And then that second six months with all that under the belt, kind of started putting some of those extra rotations away so that you could become, I was a senior fellow at that point as it changed, which means my responsibilities increased. I ran my own clinics. So I had a lot of independent clinics, not have my fellowship director there. And I think this is common for other fellows, but in this environment, I was, you know, it's pretty high speed and it's pretty mm -hmm. busy. And so you need to be able to manage that. You're managing your fellowship director, needing things, you're managing the other fellow if there's kind of questions or concerns. And so now is the time to kind of start honing in on who you're going to be because oh, guess what? In six months, you graduate and you're applying for jobs, <laughs> right. you know? And so at this point too, you transition into doing more of the higher risk and more unique procedures like advanced devices, like spinal cord stimulator trials, uh, kyphoplasties, the cervical procedures, um, and any other, any other unique thing that maybe you just do once or twice a year, maybe that's on your table at that point. And all along this, this time, spending so one weekend a month doing inpatient coverage call as an attending. And so that that's a good transition opportunity to have that attending role still as a fellow because you're done with all your inpatient qualifications. You know, you, you can do inpatient rehab, leaving residency as a PM&R, as a general PM&R resident and go do an inpatient rehab job. So I went to Hopkins and I would do that inpatient coverage as an attending one weekend every four four weeks or something like that. So that continued throughout the whole year. And did I love that? No, nobody wants to be on call. But in a way, I liked it <laughs> because I got to practice having those confident skills and, you know, being, you know, um, practice being, having oversight over the residents and letting them develop into who they're going to be and trying to be helpful and teach them what I know. And it was a good transition time. You know, you weren't required to be the attending the entire time, but you had these opportunities to kind of develop your attending skills on the inpatient side of things. Yeah, sounds like an incredible 
program and, and you came out of there, you were looking for your first attending job, which you just finished first your first year. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually going into the, the last uh, month here, which I finished my first year. So probably about 11 months now. Yeah. So I am super curious and I wonder how has this year been for you as you developed your practice mm-hmm. style, as you literally built a practice? Can you tell us about that? Oh, it's been so exciting. I really was a little bit overwhelmed by the idea of jumping in and helping the hospital develop that. So um, to provide a little background on the setting I work in, I am in a a hospital setting that is independent, a 501c, so not under the hospice of, you know, hospice of like an HCA or anything like that. So we are independent in that aspect, um, but we are a hospital system. And so in my hospital system, I am set with the orthopedic group and orthopedic surgeons. I'm the only one in the group and in my hospital that provides pain uh, management, interventional spine management. And so I wow. am the only physiatrist in the whole hospital. I do not do any inpatient coverage. It's all outpatient in that respect. And so I was asked to essentially bring the, the pain service line to the hospital system. Um, wow. and I thought it found it, I thought it sounded exciting. You know, I was looking for something different, um, to do it. There's a whole story about how hard it was to find a job during COVID and how I ended up here, um, is a very long story. And so I ended up here, <laughs> but <laughs> it, when I looked at the opportunity of developing this in this unique setting that I never thought I'd be in Myrtle beach, I thought, well, you know, this is going to push me to out of my comfort zone. You know, I like, I don't think I'm a person that just goes to work and turns wrenches. I just don't think that's me. And I'm not saying that shouldn't be some people. I think there's something for everyone. I, I don't hate on that. Maybe I'll be that person in another chapter of my life, but I don't think that, I don't think that's me right now that I wanted to go to work and just turn wrenches. And so I thought this was a great opportunity to come in with ideas most of which I learned from my residency program, my fellowship program, all of which had their challenges with them. And I said, okay, well, I know, oh, I know a lot from all these. I think I can do it. I don't think had my fellowship not been as well-rounded and challenging in its own right, would I have felt comfortable at all taking this job as a first out fellow? Right. But because I learned a lot about billing and scheduling and I've worked in three different surgery centers, I worked in six clinics, all of which work differently. I happened to be exposed into environments that I felt set me up to help them make the right decisions from an operational logistics standpoint to develop um, a pain service here. And so it has gone very well. Like I'm really happy with the way it's gone, but I will say absolutely 100%. I picked the job because of the leadership, because the only way this was going to be successful is because of the leaders that I had. It's not about the location, the hospital, you know, what color the office is, how new that building is, you know, all this fancy stuff. People think about how many days you have off work, you know, it is, is it about, it's about the leaders that are there. And when I interviewed with them and I met them, I, I thought very highly of them. And I thought, you know, the things they were saying were going to be delivered and I was going to trust them. And that 100% has been the reason that I'm happy hmm. here is because when I say there's a problem, number one, I'm not going to say there's a problem when there's not, you know, like I, 
I know I know how to deliver things and, and communicate things in a way that people take me seriously when I say there's a problem. But, right. you know, I do think that they are like, oh, Simone isn't doing this for Simone's comfort. You know, I've never asked for anything for my comfort or my schedule or for my my paycheck. Everything I ask for is for the hospital, the patients, you know, the the staff. And when I say we need to, you know, step back and take opportunity to look at something or we need to look at the way this is operating, they're like, okay, yeah, whatever, Dr. Maven, let's do it. Let's, let's do it. And it may, will everything be fixed immediately? No, but they're always tr- genuinely interested in helping refine it. And almost always I, I get what we need for the patients to have good care. And I think that's really the key here is being able to you know, communicate in a clear way, uh, objectively about what you need for the patients um, not putting yourself as the priority. The patients are always leading, you know, the goals that I'm making. And then also um, being able to kind of have some foresight on what's coming and kind of help the hospital see what needs to be done next. You know, and hey, I'm foreseeing this is going to be a problem when the surgery center opens in the month. You know, we need to look at these aspects. These, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's your job and that's where you're hired. I don't think it's, you know, it's not, it's not for everyone, um, yeah. but it's for me. You know, it's for me and it, it feels good. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, and it goes with your uh, your vibe and, and your brand, very on brand for you that you, you carve out your own pathway and, and it works and your patients mm-hmm. are so lucky to have you there to uh, advocate for them. Um, I know you do a lot of cool stuff over the last year. Can you describe for our listeners, we got some pre-med students, some medical students, what is a typical week like for you? as a uh, PM&R physician specialized in interventional spine? Oh, I can't open the secret box. Everyone's going to know about <laughs> the secret life of the good physiatrist. You know, I do, I do say it's the best secret in medicine. Um, it really is. And I do think people are becoming more aware of that. You know, we see that right now in residents, you know, almost the entire class every year now wants to match into a, a spine fellowship. And it really is a really great schedule. I work um, Monday through Thursday, essentially eight to five. And then um, Fridays are always a half day. That's just a, a hospital kind of standard in most of the clinics is you work until noon on Fridays. But I even like came in like asking, can I work in the afternoon? You know, I'm not, you know, I'm still like all like gun ho from fellowship, you know, right. and they're like, no. Well, there's not going to be anybody there just being there. And that might change as we move clinics. But even like today, I did procedures in the afternoon. All day Wednesday, I'll do procedures. And so those days can vary um, what time I finish based on how the procedures go. So you can have very early days where you're done before five. I don't take call at all. And um, I, that does vary depending on your contract and what environment you go into. Um, and what the requirements are. And so it's not like a default. This environment doesn't technically require that. And I had to explain that and let them understand there is, there's literally no need for call. Either the patient, it needs to go to the emergency room because, you know, God forbid, which has never happened, I've damaged their spinal cord or the patient needs to see me in clinic. Like there's no happy medium with what I do. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so that, and that's common. Most pain clinics, there is not a call per se. So it's not like it's abnormal, but what happens in some hospital systems is that physiatrist um, does some other things in the hospital, or maybe they're helping work outpatient call if that's a thing with that ortho group. And there's some other, you know, nuances. However, I was really adamant about not 
taking a job on call, whether it was here or anywhere, I was not going to be on call. Like the, there's nice, it's not necessary and I will negotiate it out of the contract or I'm just not going to work there. And so we made sure that that was going to be true. And, and I mean, and by the way, I'll caveat that with, I will always take a call if there's a complication after I do procedure on someone and I've gladly taken calls to reassure patients after hours. So it's not like this solid rule. I, I have responsibility with the patients, but feel there needs to be a separation on a personal level, which is request. I have to have separation because I just give so much to these pain patients every day and it's exhausting. And I think if there's longevity for me in um, doing what I do, I have to have my break on the weekend and I have to have my break at night. And then you're going to get my all again, 8 a.m. Tuesday morning. You're going to get my all again you know, after the weekend on Monday, I'm not going to be a disgruntled employee. I'm not going to be short with my patients. I'm going to listen. If I start pulling myself in areas I know I don't want to go as a physician, I don't think I would have the endurance to listen to my patients' full stories like they want and they deserve. And so for me, I knew early on, I need to kind of draw some boundaries and have my schedule to be very lined out where it's just you know, these are, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to work these hours. I'm going to go home. I'm going to come back and I'm going to be great for you. Monday morning, I'm always going to be great. You know, 8 a.m. the next day, I'm going to be great, but I, I'm going home at five o'clock, you know, and I work really hard to get my notes done at a reasonable time. So I can leave at a reasonable time. Sometimes, obviously there's things that prevent that. And I stay a little bit late, but I'm not going to be this person that's, I don't work. I do, don't do any work at home. I never don't do any work oh, at wow. home. I leave it all. I leave it all there. And I just have that boundary for myself. And so I think that schedule will change a little bit as time goes. It'll ebb and flow. And eventually I'll probably have two full days of procedures when we get to a surgery center. And there's some other logistical things that will change. That's common, just so people know. Maybe um, when I say a high volume physiatrist, I would consider 100%. I'm more of a high volume um, interventionalist. Some people in academic surgeons might do eight procedures a day, which I'm not knocking. That's just what they're comfortable with. And that makes sense. And everybody needs to do what they're comfortable with because that means the patients get the best care that they're supposed to get. Um, but I do probably more in the 20s. And so in a mm. high volume oh. environment, you know, you, you, you're going to have at least two full days of procedures a day because that's the way you order. That's your, that's your clinical practice. Um, I'm the only one here with all the surgeons. So my practice is busy and patients are demanding. So I personally feel I have to deliver. I can't just sit here and do a few cases a week. They wouldn't meet yeah. the need of the hospital system. Yeah, and, and what procedures are you doing? Um, so I do procedures primarily on the axial spine, which means anything from the base of the skull um, down to the sacrum. And that can include cortisone injections. It can include radiofrequency ablation, RFA, or also known as burning the nerve. Um, and then we do unique procedures where sometimes you find after surgery or a trauma, little nerves in that affected area, whether it be the joint or sometimes uh, after surgery, the after uh, hernia repair, the, there's a, a nerve that can be damaged in the abdominal area. Go figure. Well, I can find it. I can block it and treat it with cortisone or I can burn the nerve. And so essentially you can treat anything from the face down to the toes with medications to either prove that's the cause of pain by doing a diagnostic block, putting steroid around it to help fix it temporarily, or burn it to kill it forever. And there's such thing as a pulse ablation, which we won't get into, where you can, with mixed nerves, you can 
decrease the pain threshold coming from the sensory part of the nerve. And so those are the most common types of procedures I do throughout the spine and the rest of the body. If there's um, joint centers there, we can find it and fix it, hopefully. Well, Dr. Maven, we have been through so much together in the last uh, half hour or so. Um, Thank you so much for coming and sharing your story and opening Pandora's box on this incredible specialty of PM&R. Where can people go to learn more about what you do and kind of follow your progress and, and see what you're up to? Yeah. Well, thanks so much, first of all, for having me. It's always so fun to talk about the field of physiatry, which I think more people do need to know about since there's a lot of great things within the world. And even if you don't go into physiatry, you need to know what physiatry can bring to your patients, right? right. And so an opportunity to share that information is always well received. And I'm so happy for that. Thank you so much. I have right now uh, my Instagram, which is still building, but a great place to reach out to me. I'm there on a daily basis where I can receive questions and I mean, hey, I'm always just happy for any kind of support. If I can support you in any way and you've listened to this, I'm happy to connect with any physicians out there that just want to um, have a fellow colleague in the field to be able to bounce ideas and questions also off of. I think the more we support each other, the further we're going to get along in the long run. Awesome. And definitely, if you get a chance, check out her podcast, The Healthy 365 Podcast. It's on uh, all the major podcast platforms. Dr. Maven, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I, I hope that this was helpful for anyone, and I'm, I'm always available for anyone that has questions. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.